Hello and welcome back to the mobile segment of the movies, a pretty self-explanatory podcast, except I need a little bit more explanation today, because I'm deciding to record this as I'm taking my son to my mom's so I can go to work. And yeah, we're going to see how this goes. Hopefully there's not going to be any horrific screeching around that'll ruin the audio. But today I'm going to be continuing my Best Picture series, talking about this year's Academy Awards by discussing Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog, adapted from a novel from the same name. This one stars Benedict Cumberbatch as Phil Burbank, and Rancher, who's making his way around, I guess, the turn of the 20th century, alongside his brother, played by Jesse Plemons. And I'm going to spend a lot of this talking about just Phil as a character, because I feel more so than really any other movie that I've talked about, it kind of requires the discussion of character. There's so much that this guy does and doesn't do that lets you know exactly what type of person he is. And as you learn a little bit more about him throughout the story, you start to see why the actions and the choices that Cumberbatch makes are the way they are. So Phil is a guy who walks into a room and the eyes are on him. And this doesn't necessarily mean that he's charismatic. He's no Jay Gatsby. He's somebody who sort of demands respect. It's a very strange uh, way. He's not really physically imposing. I mean, he is to, you know, people that are smaller than him because it's Benedict Cumberbatch and he's six foot whatever. But it's more or less about just the presence he has in a room. It's more about how he can look somebody in the eye and just intimidate him with that. This is a guy that's very much built a persona of machismo around himself without having to do the flexing of muscle. This is a guy that can, through a couple of words, cut anybody down to size. But he's also damn good at his job. He knows exactly what to do. He does inspire some sense of respect among the ranchers he oversees. His brother, they're kind of a duo. You know, the brother is the customer service. The brother is the face of the ranching company. He's the one that's a quieter. Uh, he's really respectful. He's meek. He's just a little bit more confident in himself. And just carries himself kindly, which is a huge contrast to Phil's just arrogance and ego, and he always needs to have the final joke, you know? These two guys kind of pair off of each other to where, you know, the only thing that Phil really says to his brother is kind of the obvious low-hanging fruit, you know, fatso, shut up fatty, that kind of thing. Whereas everybody else, he's able to kind of like dissect who they are and really get to the meat of what troubles them or what he can make fun of them for or how he can fuck with them if he doesn't like them and just cut them down to ribbons. So they, the brothers, take their ranching operation to this kind of hotel where this lady named Rose, played by Kirsten Dunst, and her son Peter, played by Cody Smith-McPhee, they live and they help people and whatnot. And immediately upon coming in, 
you start to feel, I start to feel this tension between everybody. This kind of unspoken sort of, you can hear it in the, actually you can hear it in the strings. You can hear it in the score by Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead and Phantom Thread fame. And the guy who also, I think, he did the score for Spencer this year. Another fantastic movie. Anyway, you can hear it kind of these, like, plucking strings and these, like, sweeping motions that kind of just, like, keeps me on edge the entire time. Because you never really know when this movie is going to go off the rails. And it never really does. Or it ne- let's say it never does explicitly. Because whenever Phil meets Peter, who Peter is like a 20-year-old kid, he's skinny as all get out, he's got kind of this softer face, he doesn't really carry himself with sort of like the stomp and the, you know, demanding of presence that Phil does. He doesn't do it the same way the ranchers want to do based on Phil's example. He's just kind of elegantly flowing through the world it's a contrast that's similar to uh, Phil because Phil doesn't need to be macho and like yelling and uh, he doesn't need to demand uh, respect in order to get that presence in the room but Peter is like that in a slightly different way He's an artistic kid. The intro to his character is we see him making these beautiful bouquet of paper flowers that he's able to cut up out of like little magazines and whatnot. And it shows a, an adept talent for detail. It's this sort of artistry that's here. And whenever Phil sees that and interacts with him for the first time, immediately fucking with him immediately in the way that machismo dudes do you know calls him a nancy you know it's the kind of thing like oh you're into this kind of artistic thing in a ranching society you're gay you're pretty much like shut up it that kind of thing you know, making fun of somebody for expressing their what would be traditionally labeled as feminine characteristics you're gay in this in this part of the environment and then as he meets uh, Pete's mom, Rose, he starts cutting her down to size two, especially when she starts kind of getting friendly with, uh, with Phil's brother. And that moment, you can kind of start to see that Phil is not a person who likes to be left out of things. You know, Phil is the kind of person that sort of needs a crowd or needs somebody around him to basically boost him up, to boost up that ego. And whenever, you know, whenever Phil's brother starts taking attention away from him and the ranching in order to go hang out with this lady, whom, again, much like Peter, she's quiet, she's meek, she works hard. She kind of keeps her head down. She's definitely frustrated at the bullshit that Phil and his crew are spewing, but, you know, tries to keep it together. And, you know, Jesse Plemons and Kirsten Dunst, they're a couple in real life, and the chemistry is there, and there's moments between them that are so indeed tender. And especially watching how Jesse treats, how uh, Phil's brother treats her as opposed to Phil, 
it's one of those things where like okay the brother is showing the right way to be a man the right way to be supportive the right way to be masculine if that is a label that makes any sense anymore in our you know increasingly gendered uh in a society now where gender is increasingly becoming more of like a suggestion than actual they're more like guidelines than actual rules uh (laughs) you've got Clemens showing how to be a kind but supportive and strong man whereas Phil is just someone that's gonna cut them down to size to be superior and as they become chummy and as they sort of start this budding romance Phil notices that it immediately flips his attention on Rose and just tearing her down to size especially um, there's a beautiful scene Beautiful in, like, a darkly comedic way. Because Cumberbatch, if you know anything about Benedict Cumberbatch, you know that this motherfucker can play an asshole. And he's usually playing, like, the Sherlock asshole, the whole I'm superior than you just in my wits kind of thing. But Phil is definitely more the rough-and-tumble version of that. So he's looking at Rose playing this piano. She's practicing, and... She hasn't played the piano in a while because she's been busy. It's something that she enjoys, but you can tell that she's a little rusty at it. And just the way he watches her play this piano is kind of like the way a jaguar would watch, like, a monkey. (laughs) Like a baby monkey on the canopy. And it's almost like he's toying with his food. It's just this dark, sort of sinister moment where not a lot, like, openly happens. It's not that, you know, Phil's gonna beat this woman. It's not that Phil is gonna fight Peter. He never really punches anybody. It's just this... You ever work with somebody who's a raging dick but can back it up? That's kind of what it's like to be with Phil this moment that in some way shape or form if he's any way better than you in any form of life whether it be work whether it be artistry whether it be uh the way you hold yourself among company he's gonna use that difference and exploit the fuck out of you for it and Again, it makes for some of the most darkly comedic moments because God, this dude's such a prick and never misses an opportunity to let you know that he's a prick and he's better than you. And it's that incessant pestering. Also, you know, it's kind of exploited too by the way that Campion shoots these majestic backgrounds, these just exteriors that will take your breath away. But in a way... These exteriors are so big, and the drama is so small, and it's so petty. But ironically, as you're showing how petty, at, ironically, how Campion is showing how petty and how uh, meaningless in the grand scheme of things that all these arguments are, it does in an opposite effect kind of isolate each character. You know, there's no real place to go, you're stuck on this ranch. You're stuck with these people. And there's no escape from that pestering. And that kind of effect, I think at some point, I became Rose. Where I'm just like, alright, this this shit's enough. 
Like, you need to get the fuck over this. Like, somebody needs to sock this motherfucker in the mouth, you know? I said that multiple times. Somebody needs to sock this motherfucker in the face. But as the movie goes along, I see Peter starting to, you know, stand up for his mom a little bit more. Rose is definitely taking the abuse close to heart. And it's this kind of delicate balance between who in these characters starts having power and who of these characters starts being secure with themselves and who starts kind of losing it or becoming a little bit more vulnerable. It's this ebb and flow of power that goes throughout the movie that's the most fascinating thing to watch. And the trailer kind of made it seem like this would be more of like a there will be blood type approach. You know, like big sweeping climaxes of violence, but Campion never really goes there. And I guess that's just the understanding of what kind of characters these are. That these are people that, you know, will rather deliver death by a thousand cuts than go for the big blow. And that's kind of how the movie progresses. It's just these microaggressions that build on top of each other until there is a breaking point. But that too is quiet and that too is subtle. And it's almost as if, you know, the characters start learning from each other and developing their own style of fucking with each other. And that's kind of the fascinating drama of The Power of the Dog. You know, the, the title of the movie comes from a Bible verse. I think it's the Book of Psalms where it's about David talking to God about how there are these enemies around me. I am surrounded by people that hate me. But, you know, oh Lord, deliver me from the power of the dog. And that's such an I thinking about the idea of a dog, you know, this creature that we've bred humanity, the humanity is bred to be subservient and be lower. These things that are devolved from, that have evolved from wolves to basically be our pets. You know, you think of calling somebody a dog. They're lower than you, you know, but I mean, try fucking with a Rottweiler and see what happens when they catch you in the throat, you know, <laughs> try fucking with a Chihuahua and see what happens when they catch your ankles. It's this dichotomy of this thing that is very deadly and dangerous, but realistically is a lowly creature. And so, as you see in the movie, I think this applies to Phil. And as you learn more about Phil's backstory, about his relationship with this guy, you're going to hear this name all the time, Bronco Henry. This larger-than-life figure in uh, Phil and Phil's brother's life. At one point, I think Phil harkens to the story of Remus and Romulus, the brothers that were raised by wolves. Uh, And one of them started the city of Rome. Even then, that wolf metaphor, you know, if Bronco Henry is the wolf, does that mean that the brothers that evolve from them are dogs? In, In this case, Phil. And Phil's got his own power because, you know, it's the gnashing of teeth. But realistically, this is the power of somebody that should be beneath everybody else, but isn't. Because I guess you're in the Wild West. I guess you're in this untamed land where this toxic masculinity reigns. 
and you know seeing who these people are that would play the David role in this particular psalm is fascinating and it's also this ebb and flow of you know do you do this by be do you achieve superiority over someone by being the bigger man or do you have to succumb a little bit to that sort of beastly instinct or do you have to be a little bit more of a snake this again this back and flow this ebb and flow man that's the fascinating part about this film and then watching how campion ratchets the tension is just exquisite man i mean i talked about johnny greenwood's score it's one of those scores that i've been playing in the car which is also tense kind of like kimmy's score from cliff martinez but it is also gorgeous and it's kind of beautiful to listen to and and kind of sit down without the context of the movie and calm down but within the context of the movie pardon me is fucking terrifying (laughs) you know the more i think about it i think benedict cumberbatch is the one that i want to win best actor because as much as i adore tick tick boom and as much i adore andrew garfield's performance i find that that presence doesn't seep and permeate through the movie as much as cumberbatch's does that character whenever they're there you know the boot phil's boots introduce you to phil before phil does that kind of feeling that he's always there even when he's not in scenes this feeling that he could be watching you it's almost like a slasher (laughs) it's almost like a serial killer man he's got this like norman bates in the west thing going on and that presence so permeates the film that you need an actor who's able to carry that presence even when they're in the background of a scene and Cumberbatch just 100% sells it he this is not Doctor Strange this is not Sherlock Holmes this is not uh Alan Turing this is a completely other beast and I think it's Cumberbatch just delivering on all his best and worse qualities but uh I wanted to talk a little bit about Cody Smith-McPhee because he's getting a lot of buzz for his supporting role as Peter. And it's interesting because you can see in Peter how how much of baby Phil there is. You know, you could kind of see that, you know, give this guy a couple of twists and turns, you could definitely see how this dude could turn into Phil. These are guys whose relationships are to a older sort of mentor type men are the strongest relationships in their lives. This is something where uh, both men are analytical and deta- heavily, heavily detail oriented. And they also examine people. You know, there's a pivotal scene wherever Peter who's training to be a a vet or a doctor, he's doing, you know, this anatomical research on a rabbit. And uh, I don't know, it's just the precision and the focus and, you know, the only slight movements in his hand as he's examining this thing that lets me know everything about Peter 
that do not mistake his elegance for weakness. You know, more like if Phil is a dog, uh, Peter is a snake. And it's watching him discover that part of himself that becomes kind of fascinating throughout the film. Uh, I don't want, again, I don't really want to talk about more without, you know, going into the specifics of what each person does throughout the whole movie, which again, it would just ruin you watching the film. But just letting you know that this slow burn power play is one of the most engaging films that I've seen in the past couple months. And it didn't quite start out that way. This is a movie that didn't quite hit me until I heard other people talk about it and point out some of the things that I hadn't. This is a movie that really needs discussion because I don't think, at least based on my experience, I don't think you're going to get everything on the first watch. It might be the second watch or the third or the fourth. There's so much to uncover here in the shot selection, in the cinematography, in the score and in the performances and in the choices that each performer takes that lets you know so much more about how viscerally fucked the entire situation is so i recommend you watch the power of the dog for yourself it is still one of the front runners for best picture and there's a reason why there's a lot to kind of chew on There's not a lot of fat in this one, so chew on it, enjoy it, relish and sort of how fucked up and weird it is, relish in the performances, and just the straightforward fucking beauty of these shots, man. Jane Campion is a motherfucker, man. And uh, the cinematographer, I think, is going to win Best Cinematography this year, too. Uh, Let me, while I'm here... You might hear some rustling from my phone. Let me look up the cinematographer just so I can, you know, give them their due. Oh, man. I really love, uh, speaking of the shots, there's this one where it's... uh, called oh phil's brother george i'm sorry i keep forgetting the name and i know i've said uh, phil's brother throughout the entire thing but phil's brother is named george uh there's a moment where george and rose are um kind of like standing outside and sort of enjoying a little meet cute sort of thing not really a meet cute but they're kind of going on a date and you just look at this background and see this visage of these mountains and all these fields and they're so breathtaking and gorgeous and then combined with that is George looking at Rose and I don't know what I don't know why I'm reminded of this Modest Mouse song uh, Wooden Soldiers where in the refrain it's uh, just being here being you is enough for me this idea of just being in the moment, just, you don't need to be anyone else, you don't need to be anybody, like, crazy or special, you don't have to save the world or anything, just you being here with me is enough for my life, and I, that song talking about how the waves are rolling in, you know, people make plans, but the tides come in, you know, the way that the world kind of revolves, like, without you touching or controlling any of it, 
But whenever these characters kind of embrace the moment and embrace their mortality and vulnerability and just the simple joys of life, they're at their best. And, I don't know, I just found that fascinating. Uh, Ari Wegner, director of photography. I hope I hope she wins it, man. Because that woman is able to get some motherfucking shots and sell this story along with Campion in a way that is just continually fascinating. It's something that grows on me. And, yeah, I cannot really recommend this film enough. So... Thank you very much for listening to me talk about Power of the Dog. Uh, if you want to follow me, Daniel Barrios, on Twitter, you can do so at the movies underscore pod. Again, I recommend Power of the Dog. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to catch the rest of the Best Picture nominees before the ceremony. I think I've still got. Uh, I haven't explicitly talked about Dune in its own episode but i did talk about it in the episode of the movies of last year that stuck with me so if you haven't heard that go ahead and listen to that episode i've talked about don't look up on another episode so i guess it's dune don't look up i've talked about west side story and i'm talking about power of the dog so i've still got what is it licorice pizza king richard nightmare alley Uh, i keep forgetting a bunch of these films uh Whatever films are left over for Best Picture, I'm going to try to watch. Uh, Coda. Coda is there, and I know I'm missing one more. Oh, God. What is it? I'm running through the Rolodex in my brain. Uh, I, I cannot come up with it now. I'll probably kick myself later when I'm, listen, when I'm uh, looking through the nominees. But anyway, uh, until next time, thank you again for listening, and y'all take care, okay? Bye. Thank you.